Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, you know the needs of the people in this congregation and throughout this region. Father, this congregation, we deal with your word. We want to know verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word, the weight of what your word has to say to us. Because we know if it's not eternal, it's just plainly out of date. And so we've got to take the eternal and press it into the temporal stuff of life. So you know the needs of each one here, the struggles they're facing, the tears on the pillows that perhaps nobody else sees but you. Minister to that heart. For the one this morning who comes spiritually curious, intellectually hungry, looking for something deeper and broader than what the opinion broadcasters of the various news outlets offer. And they've walked into a setting where the God of truth is explored. Speak to that mind, that heart. So, Father, the minutes count. The glory's at hand. You're central. So, Father, in these minutes to come, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As once again, now, Father, we've come here. We've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonathan Edwards, as he chronicled the life of David Brainerd, has Brainerd saying, as he was about to pass away, I do not go to heaven to be advanced, but to give honor to God. It is no matter where I shall be stationed in heaven, whether I have a high or a low seat there, but to live and please and glorify God. My heaven is to please God and glorify him. Give him all the glory, to be wholly devoted to his glory alone. The biography has gripped my heart through the years as I've pondered the significance of that very distinctive testimony of David Brainerd from the writings of Jonathan Edwards. And I think it has a lot to say about the passage you and I are exploring this morning. Because this passage deals with the various states of life as it relates to life and death. It deals with our lives before death. It deals with what it means to live at death. And furthermore, it has something to do with life upon Christ's return. It deals with bodies prior to being glorified. It deals with bodies that are glorified. And so there's something here for each and every one, but we're going to have to think deeply, and we're going to have to think seriously, and we're going to have to apply this in a way that will minister to all those that, that are hurting in one way, shape, or form that we come across on a daily basis. Now, there are three elements here uh, that I want to draw out for us this morning about this whole matter. And first of all, it comes out of verse 1, that as we consider our lives before death, at death, and upon Christ's return, I'm going to want you to first note with me now the distinctions, the distinctions that we, you and I, we should make. The distinctions 
are the distinction between what's described as the tent and the building. Check out verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Notice now what the Apostle Paul does. He starts off with a tremendous sense of certainty when it comes to matters of life and death. We find it in that phrase, we know. It's not a possibility here that he's describing at this point. There is a certainty here with regard to what he's saying. And so he's pulling us together, and he, and he has this before us. We know. But then what he does for you and me is he likens your body, my body, to a tent. Now, for those that love camping, you're going to be able to relate to this one. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So now I want you to pause and I want you to start thinking about how God has used the imagery of the tent throughout the scriptures. In the Older Testament, what you will find in Abram, later Abraham, is that he was continuously moving his tent from one setting to another. It was always temporary, wasn't it? Transitional. Not meant to stay in one place. Tents are like that, you see. But then you can move further along, and you see that in the book of Exodus, and on where there's Moses, and Moses is communing with God where? At the tabernacle, known as the tent of meeting, where he communed with God, but that tabernacle, that tent was not to be permanent, was it? No, it was meant to be temporal. Now, God uses that imagery because when you make your way into the New Testament, in John chapter 1, verse 14, you and I are told, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Greek word for dwelt in John 1, 14 is tabernacle. Literally, to pitch one's tent. So the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. In other words, you and I are meant to understand that these bodies that we are in are temporal. This is not an eternal matter. Now what Paul is going to do at this point is to seize our attention, and he does so with the Corinthians as well, because as you and I have explored in Acts 18, verses 1 and following, Paul's occupation, his trade, beyond being a Ph.D. in theology. He had a trade as well. He was a tent maker. And in a Corinth, as he would make tents, there would be soldiers, because that was a pivotal setting, a commercial setting, where many Roman soldiers would be positioned. And they would need tents. And Paul was a tent maker and was able to make ends meet by supplying them with such. Furthermore, Corinth was a setting in which athletic events would unfold and people would gather together at the Isthmian Games, later be known as the Olympics, and they would need a place to stay. And so they would come to Paul's shop, purchase a tent, and then they set up a place where they could stay temporarily. Because you see, tents are meant to be lived in temporarily, not permanently. 
Now, what the Apostle Paul is going to do at this point is he's going to contrast for you and me when it comes to the matter of the human body, the tent versus the building. He wants you and me to make that distinction in verse 1. Because you'll notice here, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, which does and will happen 100% of the time, he doesn't leave you there. He gives you hope. We have a building from God. Now, the word building here is a metaphor to contrast with the tent because the tent's meant to be temporal. Your body's temporal, but this building is meant to be permanent. We are living in a culture then that is trying to turn tents into buildings. We look for medical technology to find ways in which we're going to make what is temporal permanent. So we do what's necessary to be able to enhance the quality of life as well as the quantity of life. The Bible describes what is permanent bodily-wise as a glorified body. What Jesus Christ had when he, three days later, was raised from the dead. And so what we see now is the tension here between what is temporary and what's permanent. And the believer has got to be wise because in a culture which doesn't make such distinctions, we've got to remind people what is temporary and what's permanent. Some of us have faced that in these past days. What do you do with life when death and life collide? And the highs and the lows are demanding equal attention. This is the stuff of life. And what is powerful about all this is that when the believer is able to make these distinctions, then we have got to be able to communicate these distinctions to others as well who want to make what's temporary permanent, you see. Paul understood this. He understood the threats that were coming his way. So he begins with a certainty, and you and I need certainty in this fallen world. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have that sense of possession, and this is a promise, and this is a certainty. We have a building from God. But then notice what comes next. You're still in verse 1. Not made with hands. Now, what is interesting about that is that the Apostle Paul, having taught intensely about the life of Jesus Christ, would have in mind something that Jesus Christ would have had to have faced in the accusations that came his way just prior, you see, to being put on the cross. When the accusers said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Now, Jesus Christ subsequently would die on that cross to save us from our sins. And three days later would be raised with not a tent, but a building. Not a non-glorified body, but a glorified body. 
And so God now is even demonstrating for us the capacity and the necessity of being able to make healthy distinctions regarding these things. And so we see the imagery here, a house not made with hands. And then I love the next phrase, don't you? Eternal. doesn't say temporal. Eternal. But it doesn't say in the earth. No. It says in the heavens which means then that you and I have got to understand the significance of what this is all about and how this relates to your life and to my life. And when you have that certainty, you can have the certainty of a Bonhoeffer who in World War II, a prisoner of war, on a Sunday, April 8th of 1945, holding a little service in a Nazi concentration camp, all of a sudden finds that the doors are opened and these and these soldiers are calling his name, Bonhoeffer, come with us. What they would later find in that cell is that Bonhoeffer had written the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So as he said goodbye to his fellow prisoners, he then would say, for me, this is the beginning of a new life, eternal life. You see, that's what produces courage and strength when you face the emotional highs and lows of life, certainties. But the certainty requires that you and I be able to make distinctions between what's temporal and what's permanent. Don't make what's temporal permanent any more than we should try to make what's permanent temporal. Don't try to make the tent the building. Treat the tent as the tent and the building as the building. And then we've got a healthy sense of what bodily living is all about. Because as we consider our lives before death, at death, and upon Christ's return, then first of all, out of just verse 1, you note with me the distinctions we should make, the distinction between the tent and the building. But now a second element. I want you to second of all notice with me not only the dis distinctions that we should make of verse 1, but now the groanings that we now experience in 2 through 5. He picks it up. It's almost as if he has been listening in on what takes place in some hospital somewhere. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Now circle that word groan. Here's our present sufferings at this point. I remember back in my early 20s when Dr. Warren Wearsby, pastor, was trying to find a way to be able to put the groan of life in proper context. He used three G's. He said that in the creation of the world, God would say, it is good, it is good, it is good. And so at the beginning, it is good. But now, it groans. It groans. And you and I live among people who are groaning. But there comes that future point in time where there's glory. Glorified body, 
And the sequence of history is to move from the good to the grown to the glory. But a lot of people that want to make the tent as a building want to bring the glory into the grown. And not be able to see that there is more to life than simply this side of the grave. And so we make these distinctions, but we also make these connections, don't we? And so in verse 2, he says, For in this tent, not in this building, in this tent, we groan. But notice with me at this point, there's something healthy here. In the midst of the groaning, there's longing. In this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. I believe, as Lewis, yes, Lewis would remind us at this point, this is a healthy tension as well, because we're so focused then upon the groaning, we don't understand the value of the longing. That part of the groaning is meant to be preparation for what it is we long for, that which is permanent. So in the midst of your groaning is this longing for something more, because you have this sense that, Whatever it is, this is not enough. This is temporal. This is not permanent. When you've got the groaning, seize the longing. Put them together. See how it works for you spiritually. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. But then you're up to verse 3, aren't you? And in verse 3, he adds, If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. And you say, Gary, what on earth is that about? Well, now, what you and I have explored through the course of time, matters of death and matters of life, we've drawn out that there are three types of death described in the Bible. I've stated them in our, in our insert this morning. There's, first of all, spiritual death. It's the separation of the soul from God. Come into this world physically alive, but spiritually dead, separated from God. But second, there is physical death. It's the separation of the soul from the body. What others, our loved ones who are now with the Lord and so forth, have experienced. But thirdly, there's eternal death, which is spiritual death made permanent. You see, What they share in common is separation. But likewise, there's three states of life. Using the image of our bodies as tents, there's first of all the idea of being physically alive, residing in our tents. So we've pitched a lot of tents here this morning in all these services. But second of all, there is what's known as the intermediate state. If I was teaching in a classroom to students at a graduate school or Bible college or whatever, I'd have them do a paper on the intermediate state. It's one which the person is alive but unclothed, naked, out of the tent. In other words, you are present with the Lord, but you not, do not yet have a physical body, a glorified body. But then thirdly, there comes a time when one is clothed, in essence, given a glorified body. And the Apostle Paul would describe that very well in Philippians 3:20 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And he develops that even further in 1 Corinthians 15. So now, just as there are three types of death, there are also three states of life. And those of you that have lost loved ones and so forth can relate to this, is that we are dealing then with that second state matter. And we are awaiting that third state still to come, the glorified body matter. But when you begin to grasp this, it gives you a new sense of vigor and strength and courage to face the issues of life. Daniel Niles understands that. Tells the story of some missionaries who labored long and hard among the members of an African tribe until eventually just one family in this tribe became Christians. Well, he writes, shortly after, the oldest son of that family fell seriously ill. The parents and the missionaries prayed for the child's recovery, he writes. They longed desperately for healing to provide or prove to the superstitious tribespeople that God's real. But the boy died. They looked at one another and said, well, this is the end of our work. They're never going to believe us now. But now the rest of the story. To their amazement, the chief of the tribe came to them and said, we want to become Christians too. And the missionaries were startled. Why, they asked. And then the answer, we want to have a God who can make us strong to face death replied the chief, the way you and that boy faced it. This is the sort of strength that equips us to be able to handle when the tent is taken down. So now, the Apostle Paul here is drawing all this out, and these people most likely watching the soldiers moving through the streets of Corinth. Their tents off in the background where their encampment is. If it's the Isthmian Games, and there are the local spectators on hand, their tents are set up to be able to watch, observe these games, the highlight of the sports experience in Greece. So he utilizes this, he's relevant in the way he writes. And in verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What he will do for you at this point, then, is want to give you and me a sense of the internal dynamic of the Holy Spirit to face the external dynamics of this fallen world. Remember, let the internals govern the externals rather than the externals govern the internals of your life. And so in verse 5, he then adds these words that stand out to you and stand out to me. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, not my doctor, God, not my employer, God. He has prepared us for this very thing as God, but then notice God's grace here. 
who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, that word guarantee was a banker's term. It was used to describe a deposit that was made to acquire something. What God is saying to you and me at this point is putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, where the Spirit was moving to cause us to repent of sins and trust in Jesus' finished work, the Holy Spirit becomes as our deposit, which means then there's more to come. Just like when you put a deposit down, let's say, on a house, and then there's those monthly mortgage payments and so on. The deposit was placed down, but now there's still more dollars to come. So what God is now saying here at this point is, yes, you've got the Holy Spirit in the here and now, but there's something more to come. The day you will be in the presence with God. That day, in fact, that you can anticipate in the future when there is a glorified body. So now he's putting these things together for you in a very dynamic way. So you're considering your life before death. View it as a tent. Don't view it as a, a building. View life then at death where your spirit, if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, goes to be in the presence of the Lord. And then that third, that future point, upon Christ's return, the glorified body, what God provides and no one else. Technology can't produce that. So now, we've come up with two elements so far, haven't we? The distinctions we should make in verse 1, the groanings we now experience in 2 through 5. But now, thirdly, the courage we can possess in 6 through 10. And notice how the Apostle Paul, who is an incredibly courageous man, seizes this idea of courage and then shares it with those around him. So we are always of good courage. I love it. Not merely courage but we are always of good courage. Then he adds what comes next. We know. Again, we're dealing with a man here who has a sense of certainty. He believes that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. There are certainties that the believer then is able to bring in to tent living in the here and now that gives us courage to face the challenges of life that come our way. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And then in verse 7 adds this interesting statement, for we walk by faith, not by sight. While the unbeliever is reduced to trying to determine life on the basis of eyesight, the believer has insight as well as foresight connecting the present to the future, the internal and the external. I love in one of my volumes at home, a commander ordered his decimated squadron to withdraw, to retreat from the Battle of Copenhagen 
Well, Admiral Nelson, who was blind in one eye, Admiral Nelson put a telescope to his blind eye and then shouted, I really don't see the signal to retreat. Don't you love it? Turned a blind eye to retreating in life. Be courageous. Deal with certainties in this uncertain world. Keep on keeping on. They won the battle. We walk by faith, not by sight. He's referring there to eyesight, but you and I, by God's grace, are given insight. And as you study Revelation, you've got foresight. But then verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But too many people want to be away from the Lord and at home with the body. See the tensions in this world? So now, what God is doing for you and me is to understand the tensions of life. And for all the tent dwellers of this world are trying to turn their tents into buildings. He's equipping us to be able to make such distinctions so that we're able to think these things through realistically and wisely, all for God's glory. So, in verse 9, he begins to pull his thoughts together for you and for me, and this is good stuff. Because in verse 9, he says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That's your goal in life, to please him. You remember at the baptism of Jesus Christ, a very powerful statement came from the heavens. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine hearing those words? That was the impetus for Christ's earthly ministry, you see. But that word please has to be understood in this culture that's driven by pleasure. And the self-gratification is such that people seek pleasure for self. But when we are honoring God, we seek to please him. Pleasure versus pleasing, you see. Is it focused upon me, or is it focused upon God? Will the applause be for God, or am I seeking the applause for self? Dennis DeHaan tells the story of a brilliant young concert pianist. He was performing in public, audience was enraptured with what he was doing. People couldn't take their eyes off the young virtuoso, Dehan writes. And as the final note faded, the audience burst into applause. Everybody was standing except one elderly gentleman still in his seat. Stage manner comes out at this point. Stage manager says to the young man, Look at all the people applauding. And then the young man looked down at this one elderly gentleman and said, but not him. Finally, the elderly man stood. And then the pianist said, now it makes all the world for me. That elderly man was my teacher. 
In other words, he wasn't looking for the pleasure of the crowd. He was seeking to please the one that had positioned himself in their front row. Now, when you and I, in the midst of this tent living, understand that then, we've got to ask ourselves, in whom am I positioned to please? Am I seeking pleasure? Or am I out to please the one who sent Christ to die for our sins? So, he ties it all together. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, For we must all, not some, all, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And interestingly enough, he's speaking to believers at this point. Not unbelievers. Unbelievers stand before the great white throne. Judgment. Revelation describes it. But the believer stands before the Bema seat. Now, there was a Bema seat in Corinth. I stood before it in October. Let's show it on the screen. If you could put it on the screen for me, what you're going to be able to see at this point is where, where some of our family members stood. It is where the Apostle Paul described in Acts chapter 18, and those verses beginning with verse 1 and following, you would find that the Apostle Paul was being put on trial for his claims with regard to Jesus Christ. Here's another scene from Corinth, if you'd show that one as well. There you will find from a different angle what has been left archaeologically for us to be able to process. The Bema seat, described in Acts 18 where Paul stood and then declared not guilty. Now, you and I stand before, eventually, the Bema seat of Jesus Christ to be judged and cast into either heaven or hell. No, the Bema seat is for a different purpose. It's for believers only. And it's described furthermore in the second part of verse 10, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And the word evil here, the Greek word is phalos, describes the mundane stuff of life, the stuff that has no value. The same description in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality, not the quantity, the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work, which he has built on, remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This is the description here. What God is saying is that you and I, if we are simply seeking pleasure, pursuing things that don't matter, and ultimately we'll stand before God, that stuff gets burned up, then we're asking ourselves, and what's left? It will be the stuff that has what Lewis describes as the weight of glory. The stuff that is tied to eternal value. The stuff that in 
chapter 4 would remind us we do not lose heart. And though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, tent stuff. But the things that are seen are eternal, building stuff, you see. Are you making the distinction? The distinction between the tent and the building in connecting the dots for your life, for God's glory. When Richard Baxter was about to pass away, his words were, Lord, what thou wilt, where thou wilt, when thou wilt, to God be the glory. Let's stand together. We want to make sense of life, so we go to the author of life. Thank you for even using imagery and metaphors like tents, buildings, and such, to capture our attention through creative imagination, allowing us to be able to see and understand, not so much with eyesight, but with insight, connected to foresight, as to what the present is all about and what the future entails. So if there's anyone here today that came in struggling, they have experienced the incredible loss of the temporal. May they find their hope, their strength, and their courage in what's eternal and bring the eternal into the temporal and understand that the deposit has been made in their soul. There is more to come and that we have certainty and we can face today and tomorrow because of Jesus Christ. And forget this, we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.